The Money Show. Other people's money. Other people's money this evening. What a pleasure to have the former chief executive of GCIS. His name is Temba Maseko. Uh, he is also the author of a brand new book called For My Country. And Temba Maseko, of course, has uh, become increasingly well known in recent months for his resistance to being caught up in the state capture machine. Temba Maseko, welcome to The Money Show. Hey, Bruce. Good evening. Good evening to you and to the listeners. <clears throat> Good to have you with us this evening. What would you be advising the president to do? I mean, uh, put on your old hat, your old comfortable pair of slippers. The job you used to do as the chief executive of the Government Communication and Information Service. What would you be advising the president to, to do this evening as he addresses the nation for the second time in 24 hours? I hope he's going to be able to affirm the independence of the judiciary and the supremacy of the constitution and make the point that we're all equal before the law and that as government, uh, as politicians, they will not interfere with the decisions of the judiciary. Secondly, I think that you, you will have to address uh, the lawlessness, lawlessness that we are seeing in, in two provinces, primarily Gauteng and Gauteng, and actually make a call to the public to desist from participating in the looting that is destroying small businesses, large businesses, adding to the level of unemployment that we have in the country, and that they should not use the excuse of the the former president being jailed as a reason to actually conduct the lawlessness that we're seeing uh, in many parts of the country. But secondly, what is clear, I'm sure he will be aware that, in fact, Many people are using the arrest of uh, Jacob Zuma as a reason to participate in the looting. But it's very clear that there are also criminal elements that have taken advantage of the situation. But unfortunately, there are issues of poverty, unemployment and hunger that are driving some, not all, of the activities that are taking place. But largely, it has become a criminal activity in, in all parts of the country. He will therefore be affirming the need to have the military to support the police so that all those who are in, in, participating in the looting are appre- apprehended and brought before the court as soon as possible. And it's so important for him to be absolutely transparent. I mean, one of the things he's been criticised for is throughout this COVID-19 crisis is not taking questions in terms of his his briefings and his statements. Do you think he's been treated fairly on that particular front in terms of his national statements of this is where we are and this is what we're going to do to try and tackle the COVID crisis? Look, in, in the beginning, uh, when the, the pandemic hit our shores, I understood why he did not want to have a, a, a press conference where he allows journalists to ask questions. But I think that with, with the passage of time, there is very little justification, in my view, for not allowing questions to be posed to him. I think that he must be able to demonstrate to the citizens of this country that he's got everything under control. And one of the ways he can demonstrate that is by actually availing himself to answer questions from the journalists uh, during the, the press presentation. Yeah, I mean, and that's the sort of advice you would give him if you were still at GCIS. But sadly, you're not because uh, you left GCIS, <laughs> of course, and um, as you've disclosed in your book, which is for my country, because you simply refused to be bullied and cajoled 
uh, in your time and you told the Zondo Commission, I think it, was, it feels like a million years ago, but 2019, one of the early uh, ev- evidence sessions that were led, that you know you were pressured quite severely to take government advertising and pour it directly into the coffers of then the New Age newspaper. Absolutely, and I go into a bit of detail in the book because I think what has been happening over the past couple of years is that my story had been told by a lot of journalists and analysts, and I thought it was opportune for me to actually begin to tell my story in my own words, and that's, that's the reason for writing the book. But also my sense is that you know a lot of people who participate in government, in struggles, in revolutions, hardly tell their own stories to tell the citizens how the, a particular situation affected them personally. And their stories end up being told by journalists and analysts. But also, many of the actors in struggles end up going to the grave without telling stories about how certain situations had an impact on them as individuals. So that's why part of what I've been communicating over the past few weeks was the need for more and more actors and activists to begin to write their own books and tell their own stories in their own words so that we don't lose the history, the rich history that all of us are making each and every day of our lives in the country. But I go into more detail in the book to, to just talk about how the Guptas, using their friendship with President Zuma, tried to actually put pressure on me to help them steal money from the public press. And when I had a meeting scheduled with Ajay Gupta, I got a call from President Zuma, former President Zuma, asking me to help his friend, something that he had already said in public that the Guptas were his friend. So initially, I justified him and the Gupta family because I did not want to be part of that uh, criminal network. And that actually led to me losing my job because later on, I then become, became a whistleblower. Initially, I had just been somebody who was defying the most powerful man in the country, Zuma and the Guptas. But later on, when I started realizing that, in fact, there's more to this than just wanting to steal money from the government's communication budget, that's when I decided to become a a whistleblower and tell the public about what actually happened to me and what was beginning to unfold in the country, where a family was beginning to take charge of the coffers of of our country, your tax and my tax press. And that's why I decided to defy and blow the whistle. And again, I mean, as, as offended as we should all be at the at the theft of our taxes, it is what's happening today is a direct consequence, at least in part, of the president's decision in those days to befriend the Guptas and allow them to empty the fiscus. Um, because one of the reasons why the country doesn't have the money to fight COVID-19, why it doesn't have the money for poverty alleviation, one of the reasons why people feel completely justified, many people would feel completely justified in running amok on the streets and helping themselves to stuff out of the shops without paying for it, is because they believe that government should be giving them more support, should be backing them up, should be helping them. And in an ideal situation, yes, it should. But there's very little left with which to to do that. And that is, I mean, the reality of the situation. That's, that's, I think, the bigger problem. That in fact, we're seeing heightened levels of poverty, which makes it possible for people with sinister agendas to manipulate ordinary citizens. And let's face it, yep. most, you know, there are people who go to bed hungry in this country. Um, there's 
load shedding that we're experiencing in the country. We can't, we don't have enough money to vaccine our citizens. There are potholes in every street corner. And people aren't able to make the connection to say government coffers are empty. There isn't money for government to deliver services to our citizens. And a lot of it has to do with incompetence, but the bigger part of it has to do with the thieving, the theft of public funds that has taken place. Yes, the, the state capture project, which was engineered and managed and run by the Gupta family, is just one part of it. The bigger part is that corruption has actually filtered down to so many levels of government because civil servants, many politicians realized that, in fact, there was no accountability. Those who were involved in state capture were not held accountable. So it became a culture in the public service where for each and every contract that is issued, somebody wanted to kick back a bribe, and that has become part of the culture. And people don't realize that, in fact, all of these things are connected. The reason why government is not able to solve the, the challenges of job creation, fixing our economy, fixing our schools, has a lot to do with the fact that there's been thieving of public funds that has taken place over the past uh, a couple of years, in fact, a decade or so. So when people are hungry at night, they are angry, and justifiably so. But we need to be yeah. able to educate our population that, yes, be angry, but do not destroy things that are actually creating jobs, creating wealth for a country by looting, and, and something that is damaging our reputation as a country global. So a, a firm hand on the president's party is going to be required this evening. Absolutely. And that's coming in 15 minutes time, of course. But before that, we need to talk to you about you and your attitude towards money. What, what gave you the courage to say no? What gave you the courage to push back? What, what is it in you that isn't in so many other people who did accept the bribes? As, as I state in my book, Bruce, I mean, I, 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 I'm a child of, I use the phrase child of the ANC in the book, but I'm a child of the struggle. I spent all my youth participating in the fight against apartheid. I lost a lot of comrades who were killed by the apartheid state. So the issue of liberation of our country is something that was, still remains very close to my heart. So when we won the elections in 1994, I saw that as an opportunity for us as former activists to get into government, to transform government so that we can begin to address the challenges of poverty, inequality, and unemployment. So when somebody comes to me and says, help me steal 600 million rands from the government coffers, I thought that was something so anti what I believed in as a person. And that's why I decided to let him say, I'm going to defy Zuma and not assist his friends by stealing money from, from government. And not largely because I thought we had fought too much. So many lives have been lost. And we can't just give it away by stealing money from the public purse. So that's why I decided to defy. So when the Zuma kids describe Jacob Zuma's incarceration for his defiance of the Constitutional Court and his refusal to go to Zondo um, to, to answer questions, some fairly elementary questions about his role uh, in or otherwise with regard to, to state capture, and there may have been some questions emanating from your testimony, for example, when his kids then sort of say this is akin to the apartheid state, I mean, that must really cut to your very, very core in terms of your experience of the apartheid state versus what the ANC has tried to achieve over most of the last 27 years? Bruce, it is one of the most disappointing things that I've observed. Many activists were part of the struggle 
and who hero worships a lot of the leaders such as Jacob Zuma. So, so for somebody like that, for example, to allow his name to be used as a reason for the looting that we're seeing in this country, because it was truly somebody who was committed to democracy, constitutionalism. He is somebody who could have spoken even from prison to say, don't destroy this country in my name. If you want to do it, do it, but don't use my name. And his refusal to condemn the violence, to condemn the kind of uh, attitude we saw when he addressed a meeting outside his house in Kandla, when he was asked by journalists, but why don't you condemn your supporters who are here? He plainly refused and said he didn't make them to, to, to the destruction. Yeah, typical Zuma, I'm afraid. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and Tembo Maseko, we'll pick up more on that in a moment. I, I need to talk to you about what you're up to at the moment. Talk to you about you know, what the future looks like for Tembo Maseko. We'll do that in just a moment. Tembo Maseko turned down the opportunity to get rich. She said, no, thank you very much. I'm not going to compromise my values. I'm not going to compromise my standards. I'm not going to compromise my fundamental belief that the future can be better than the past by accepting money to allow the Guptas, even at the behest of the president, help my friends out, was the basic tenet of the call, uh, and uh, took a massive dive. He had to leave his job. He was, uh, were you fired or did you, did you resign? What were the exact circumstances, Tebo Baseko? I, I, I need that first. Can you ask the question again? Sorry, did you go or were you pushed out of the job at GCIS? Did it just simply become untenable for you to be there or did they actually fire you? I can't remember. Forgive me. No, no, I was, I was pushed out. I mean, I, I, I had a, an unfortunate situation where Zuma called my, my former minister, the late Colin Chambani, and told him that by the time he returned oh, to the country, right. I was in Addis Ababa, attending an AU summit. And he told my minister that by the time he returns to South Africa, I must not be at GCIS. So, in effect, Zuma fired me from Addis Ababa. And what Colin Chabani did was to try and soften the blow because he knew that I had not done anything wrong. And he told me in, in so much words to say he does not agree with the president. He thought I was doing a good job. But the long and short of it is that uh, I was sitting at a cabinet meeting waiting to write a statement, as was my job. And then news were leaked out to the media that I had been fired. And when Colin Saban went to Zuma to find out if that was true, and Zuma confirmed that, yes, uh, I'm, I'm, I've been fired, and that I'll be replaced by Jimmy Mani as the new government spokesperson. So <laughs> Colin Saban decided to Sorry. deploy me. Oh, goodness me. <laughs> Colin Saban decided to deploy me in a different department, public service and administration. I went there and... Unfortunately, the minister of the department, Minister Baloyi, was not at the cabinet meeting. So I had the misfortune of having to tell him that I was his new DG and I was not very pleased. And I stayed about uh, three or four months in the department and decided I, I would, I'd rather resign than be placed in a situation where I felt a little bit unwelcome. And I understood why Minister Baloyi was not very happy with the decision because he had not been consulted. So I eventually decided uh, that was it. A career of 17 years in the public service ended because I, I defied Zoma and the Gupta family by refusing to be part of a criminal network. So what 
are you doing? I mean, you, yes, I mean, I know writing a book is hard and it drains your soul. It's particularly when it's personal and intimate and you are telling stories that you want people to hear. But boy, it's a hard thing to do. Other than writing the book, how are you keeping the wolf from the door? Well, it's, it's really tough for whistleblowers in this country because uh, public sector yep. and private sector consider you to be um, a political risk, so you, you can't find employment. I mean, I tried different things, board appointments, I tried private sector jobs. Uh, I even tried to raise funding from the banks, and I was told I was a politically exposed person, so I could not even raise funding to start, to start my own businesses. So... At the moment, all I'm doing is to sell my book, thinking about the next book I'm going to write, and then participating in a few uh, business deals with friends. And fortunately, one or two of them are able to pay dividends. And I, I do a little bit of consulting, management consulting here and there. Um, yeah, so it is tough, but uh, we soldier now. We soldier now. How do you maintain to have? Your your very positive outlook on life and your very positive view of the future when you have been treated so abominably by people you would have thought were friends, people you would have thought you shared a commonality with from a political perspective, to only then be kicked out and then to be ostracized by everybody else? Well, I think it's all in the title of my book, Bruce, because I love this country too much. I mean, I love it. I love this country and its people more than I love myself. So I try to keep positive because I tell myself every single day when I wake up in the morning that I did what I did for my country and that if I could have another opportunity to be offered such a prize or a bribe by the cooktowns, I think I'll do it again. I'll decline it again. So how I'm maintaining my positive outlook is simply because I love this country and I think there's great hope lying ahead, despite the many challenges and problems that we're facing. But I still remain optimistic that, in fact, with a president like Ramaphosa, we have a better chance of addressing the challenges facing our nation. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be around for as long as I live to make sure that, in fact, the country doesn't go off track. I would hate to go to the grave knowing that, in fact, South Africa has become another Zimbabwe. I think that's, that's the last thing that I would want to see. So I, I remain optimistic and I will continue doing whatever is possible to, to you know, help the country to, to remain on track. Doesn't it burn you that there are so many people with so much to offer who are kept out of the circle of trust out of, you know, who, who who could contribute but can't contribute because you're ostracized. I mean, have you had the conversation with government to say, hey, I'm willing to come back? Have you had a positive response to that, a negative <laughs> response? Or would they just not return your calls? Well, uh, in, the, in the book, I do indicate that, in fact, you, you when you've blown the whistle, especially on somebody who was president of a party, you face uh, isolation and ostracization. So all attempts in the past to try and get back into full-time employment, either in the public or private sectors, have not been very uh, positive. And the third part is that, in fact, I'm not just I'm just I'm not just an isolated case. There are literally tens or hundreds of people out there with great skill who would love to come back to public service, but unfortunately, opportunities are not created for such. And also, the fact that the public service, the public sector has been associated with so much corruption 
in my view, is discouraging a lot of people from wanting to give back to the nation because of the, the level of negative reporting associated with corruption that discourages many professionals from wanting to go into the public service and, and, and get a job. During the past 10 years, the public service also experienced what I call a skills or a brain drain, where a lot of good ethical people left the public service because they just couldn't stand the level of interference when it comes to procurement that they were beginning to experience. So I think it's a loss to the public service, but many South Africans are there who could be making a good contribution. And I think that's President Ramaphosa's role, to go out and find people who can actually help build the capacity of the state. Because we need very good, strong, ethical people in the public service to make sure that we can address all the challenges that we're facing. And my God, we've got skills in this country. They're just not being recruited and drawn into the public service to make sure that it can, we can have a capable state. Thank you for sharing with us this evening. And I'm hoping that that happens. I really am. Temba Maseko, former chief executive of GCIS, the author of a book called For My Country, How to Turn Down a Bribe.